Welcome to Twill, the week in health law, the anti-kickback podcast of record for the discussion of health law and policy. We're recording this episode on May 9th, 2016. I'm Nicholas Terry, a law professor at Indiana University McKinney School of Law in Indianapolis, joined as always by... Frank Pasquale, a law professor at the University of Maryland in Baltimore, Maryland. And Frank, this week on Twill, we're pleased to welcome Elizabeth Sepper, professor of law at Washington University Law in St. Louis. She's written extensively on conscientious refusals to provide reproductive and end-of-life health care and on conflicts over religious liberty and insurance coverage through the Affordable Care Act's contraceptive coverage mandate. Her scholarship has also examined the interaction of business religious exemptions and gay rights. Big welcome to the pod, Liz. Thanks for having me, Nick and Frank. Let's dive right in, shall we? And uh, a case that we don't have a uh, a final disposition of yet, uh, which is the Zubik and Burwell case, um, sitting up there in apparently the 4-4 split uh, Supreme Court. So other than some items on the SCOTUS blog, and of course, Tim Joe's always amazing health affairs uh, blog posts, things seem to have gone quiet. Uh, can you bring us up to date what Zubik is about, why it's kind of stuck in the court, and then maybe explain some of the issues and, and where you think the case is going? Absolutely. Uh, Zubik v. Burwell is yet another gift on the gift that keeps on giving to lawyers, the Affordable Care Act uh, litigation and the contraceptive mandate in particular. So uh, Zubik is a consolidation of cases brought by nonprofit religious employers uh, falling on Hobby Lobby who uh, object to the accommodation that HHS provided to them. So the accommodation that allows them to submit uh, either a form to their insurance company or to the government uh, notifying of religious objections that then allows separate payments for contraception outside of the employer plans. So we had oral arguments back in March. Um, and after those oral arguments, we got a sort of strange order from the court. And in the order, uh, the court suggested a possible way out in Zubik, suggesting that instead of the government accommodation, that employers simply be allowed to register objections with the insurance company simply by telling them in some form or another uh, that they uh, don't want contraception within their plans. Um, and the order was strange. It was strange in its specificity. It was also uh, unusual in that it almost exactly described the existing accommodation that the government is using. Um, so we had supplemental briefing on whether that accommodation was acceptable and then reply briefs from both parties simultaneously as well. So that process really only wrapped up a couple weeks ago. Um, and the parties say some some sort of uh, contradictory things. The the petitioners, that is the the nonprofit employers, seem to say yes at first, but really they say yes, but and no, all within one brief as to this particular uh, accommodation suggested by the court. Um, the government seemed a little bit wary. Ultimately, it said, look, if you really want to have a process that's more informal, it lacks the clarity of the current process for everyone involved, but we could go along with it. But this needs to stop. 
And should the government uh, or should the court uh, say that this is a least restrictive means of obtaining the government goals, it should make clear that the litigation then ends, that we can't see future objections from employers to this particular accommodation. Oh, well, thanks so much, Liz. That was a really nice uh, uh, introduction to all of these issues and uh, really brings, I think, a lot of listeners uh, and certainly me up to date on uh, this ongoing uh, conflict. One thing that I was wondering about is, you know, by and large, I get my news and views on the matter from Marty Letterman of the Balkanization blog. And one of his questions after the Zubik oral argument is um, whether the theoretical prospect of a new statutory subsidy for standalone contraception plans on the exchange, a less restrictive means of advancing the government's interests. And I'm wondering if you could address that both, I mean, as a matter of con law, as a matter of practicality, would that be an approach that could be uh, try to sort of a, a Solomonically, uh, well, I don't want to say split the baby, but, but I, I think it could be a way in which, you know, it, a, a, a new approach that could uh, satisfy both parties? It's fairly clear that would not satisfy both parties. So the notion of having standalone plans on the exchange is something that the nonprofit employers have suggested for some time uh, as a least restrictive means across the board. The problem here, uh, of course, comes down, as always, to ERISA, uh, because part of the, the problem, even with the supplemental briefing, is the court was asking about supplemental briefing for fully insured plans. Could we do this in the case of fully insured plans? Uh, could we simply allow employers to give this sort of soft notice to insurers? What's clear is that wouldn't work in the case of, um, of self-insured plans, um, that they couldn't have this process and it wouldn't suffice to insure coverage. Uh, and so as a least restrictive means there, the petitioner said, well, maybe standalone plans in the exchanges. Um, the problem with that, of course, comes down to what we're doing in the context of the preventive services mandate and the women's preventive service mandate in particular, which is incorporating women's health needs into comprehensive insurance coverage, whether that comprehensive insurance coverage is an exchange plan or whether it's offered through employment. So it doesn't really suffice to meet the government's goals if we have to require women who want to access contraceptives to then have have to go buy a separate plan on the exchanges, uh, even if subsidies are available for them to do so. I think sort of more fundamentally, the idea of a contraceptive-only plan really undermines the very idea of insurance, since, of course, the only people who would buy a contraceptive-only plan are women who intend to use contraception, right? We're not having any sort of risk pooling uh, or cost-sharing that is involved in things like uh, covering uh, stents for, uh, for, for cardiac patients, right? I may not need it, but I'm subsidized someone else's health needs. We wouldn't see that with contraceptive-only lands. I assume that you don't think going to over-the-counter is any kind of solution here, uh, based not only on um, the fact that then you wouldn't have insurance coverage uh, for that, uh, but also the range of um, uh, women's health services would be uh, sharply reduced. Uh, that's right. And and that's one reason why uh, even the petitioners here haven't really put forward over-the-counter uh, means as 
uh, least restrictive means to obtain the government's goals. Because, uh, right, we're not just talking about oral contraceptives. We're talking about tubal ligations as well as IUDs. Uh, and, and certainly for those two particular methods of contraception, uh, the upfront costs are exceptionally high and clearly can't be provided over the counter. Um, there's a separate issue as well in that the women's preventive service mandate covers education and counseling for these methods. So even if you did have over-the-counter access to cost-free contraceptives, you couldn't obtain through your insurance plan through employment the sort of uh, education and counseling uh, from your OB that would usually be provided as part of your employment-based plan. So do you do you risk a prediction, Liz, as to uh, where Zubik is uh, is going to end up? Uh, I, I think you're correct about uh, uh, probably uh, not exactly a sincere wish for uh, some of the parties here to to end this. It is the perfect storm of uh, of the culture wars, asserted religious liberty and ACA entitlements and so on. Uh, but uh, with regard to this particular piece of litigation, uh, and assuming that we, uh, we we don't suddenly have a ninth justice parachuted in, um, how are you predicting things? I probably am exceptionally bad at predictions in that going into the oral argument in Zubik, I would have pegged the split uh, at 6-2 in the court. Uh, I'm clearly wrong about that uh, following the oral argument. I also would have said that the court would decide the the question on the first prong of the RIFRA test, is there a substantial burden on religion? Eight out of nine courts of appeals said no, no substantial burden. Um, But really, uh, the court's request for supplemental briefing goes to the third prong of RIFRA, whether there's a least restrictive means, um, I suppose, assuming that there's a compelling interest in uh, cost-free access to contracts contraception here. Um, I still don't see a world where we have anything other than uh, either 5-3 or 4-4, technically in favor of the government. I mean, if we have a 4-4 split, then in eight out of nine circuits, um, the government will have prevailed and the contraceptive mandate accommodation process will continue as for. Got it. Well, thanks so much. And we'll definitely be watching that closely. Um, The next topic that I wanted us to discuss today uh, was your article. Article uh, contracting religion, or your uh, a chapter on this topic, which looks at the role of Catholic hospitals in ongoing hospital consolidations. And while the layman might assume that hospital uh, corporatization, that hospital chains, and private equity equity ownership of them would lead to secularization, um, I think your chapter is quite illuminating, Liz, in that it shows the many ways in which that is not the case. So, could you discuss uh, how this? ongoing phenomenon of the um, persistence of, say, Catholic religious directives within hospitals is um, sticking with them despite changes in ownership and explore a bit what that might mean for patient care. 
Absolutely. Uh, Catholic uh, healthcare obviously has operated for a long time, um, and we're seeing uh, some pressures on Catholic healthcare, but it seems like some opportunities that Catholic healthcare is using that are across the healthcare system to expand compliance with Catholic religious restrictions. Um, and most surprisingly, what you, what you note there is what I call the zombie Catholic hospitals. So these are formerly Catholic hospitals. Hospitals uh, that usually had nonprofit form, had uh, religious orders of nuns affiliated with them, and often comprising a substantial percentage or the majority of the board. Um, and then they're sold, and they're, they might be sold to secular nonprofit systems. Sometimes they've been sold to for-profit investors, um, and sometimes uh, there have been instances where Catholic hospitals are not sold, but where joint ownership has developed of public hospitals, which presents its own sort of uh, issues. So the zombie Catholic hospitals, and I think just the most sort of amazing example is uh, in the form of the sale of the Caritas Christi system in the Boston area, which was the last diocesan-owned healthcare system, and it was sold to Cerberus Capital Management. So here we have an investment fund um, that has come into the healthcare market and yet agrees to follow religious restrictions on care, and not just religious restrictions on care, so not just limiting tubal ligations and IVF and abortion and end-of-life care, but also to maintain a Catholic identity um, and to do so in ways that are included in the asset purchase agreement as legally enforceable terms, allowing, for instance, a representative of the Catholic Church to oversee ethical policies and also promising to pay uh, the Archdiocese of Boston $25 million if they fail to comply with religious commitments to the church, um, a sort of very bizarre liquidated damages provision. Um, and we're seeing this across the market. Actually, just this week, the ACLU and Merger Watch came out with a report where they tried to count up the numbers of these hospitals, and they came up with 35 for-profit Catholic hospitals, not owned by the Catholic Church, but rather operated on a for-profit basis. And they also found um, what I pointed to, public hospitals operating under Catholic religious restrictions, uh, either through joint ownership or through management by Catholic healthcare systems. Yes, there was a report, I think, from Merger Watch and the ACLU that was uh, discussed in a Washington Post piece last week, uh, noting that I think one in six hospital beds in the U.S. is now in a Catholic institution um, with the serious implications uh, for reproductive care and so on. Why are the purchasers who are not religiously affiliated agreeing to these terms, Liz? What What's behind this? And while they're doing that, what are state attorneys generals doing? I get this question all the time, uh, and it's not clear exactly what the answer is. Why are secular buyers that provide these sorts of services in other facilities willing to accept the terms? Um, I think there are a couple possible explanations. The first and foremost, 
where they are permitted to do so by law, this seems to be a non-negotiable contract term on the part of the Catholic sellers. So that's most straightforward. That said, some Catholic sellers have less bargaining power on this question. Um, West Suburban Hospital in Chicago was briefly owned by Resurrection Health, became a Catholic hospital, and then was sold to a for-profit firm. I've seen the contract there, and the contract literally says that that particular term, uh, committing to future compliance with the ethical and religious directives of the Catholic Church, is actually unenforceable. Um, That's very strange, right, to see a contract that includes a term that then says it is unenforceable. So sometimes we see see something like that. I think buyers might also be agreeing because they really, really want to break into healthcare in the case of some of these for-profit investment firms. Um, Sometimes they themselves are facing intense pressures to merge, and frankly, because of the prevalence of officially designated Catholic hospitals, there's not going to be a lot of merger partners in any particular market in the United States. Uh, So there's some of that. In the past, Catholic institutions used to discount for those buyers willing to comply with their uh, with their religious principles but i don't think that's what's going on and in part because going to state ag review part of what attorney generals are looking at is whether these nonprofit systems are getting a fair price uh from for-profit businesses buying them um so we do see state ags reviewing the sales uh, they do tend to do a trade-off, though. I mean, usually what happens in these sales is the for-profit buyer says, look, if you don't let this sale go through, the hospital will close. And the Catholic system says the same. We aren't going to find other buyers. So your choice is either letting the, the sale go through with these restrictions in place or seeing us close our doors. Not clear that would really happen. Um, the state of California has been pretty rigorous in looking looking at these transactions, and the legislature actually passed a law which prohibits zombie Catholic hospitals. It says to sellers that they cannot restrict the care that buyers provide, and it responds to this specific uh, problem, but we've only seen one state do that so far. I can only assume that the uh, the California statute was, was called the double tap, which apparently is how you deal with, with the walking dead. I didn't know that. I think I only know how to kill vampires. <laughs> So you 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 talk about how uh, this seems to be about contracting for religion rather than shared faith as uh, as as we look towards the end game here and continued consolidation uh, are we going to get to the stage in 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 some states where uh, there is going to be sort of zero choice for patients. It, it looked like we were going in that direction in Washington State. I mean, Washington State uh, has, I guess, forty percent officially designated Catholic hospitals, many of which are sole providers where they operate. So we already, I think, are at a point where, in many markets, patients do not actually have a meaningful choice. On top of that, of course, uh, patients usually aren't aware of religious. Religious restrictions. We only have limited empirical evidence here, uh, 
but a lot of folks don't even associate officially designated Catholic hospitals with uh, restrictions on on any care, really. Uh, Certainly not tubal ligations or contraception or the like. They expect to get comprehensive care. Um, And because lots of institutions like Jewish Hospital was one, Baptist Hospital, uh, are operating under Catholic restrictions, it's really difficult to know how a patient could even tell and meaningfully exercise choice, assuming a choice, at least uh, among hospitals. And there have been some uh, sort of disturbing accounts. There was a a small city in Oklahoma where after uh, the Catholic healthcare system acquired the local hospital, only one OB in the OBGYN in the entire town was reported to be able to dispense contraception. There was outcry, and since then, the system has sort of backed off, allowing possibly uh, doctors to use their own prescription pads. A lot of them said, look, we don't have any prescription pads that don't have the health system name. We don't actually prescribe in that way. Um, but we are seeing that. And, and I've been concerned in particular, there have been talk with accountable care organizations, of course, of having uh, consolidation in the line of the entire Bronx, for instance, becoming an accountable care organization. If that were to be so, and the main partner were Catholic, I just worry about the extent to which the restrictions then run all the way down. Yes, these are really interesting questions, uh, Liz. I think that a lot of people, and I think that your your piece is interesting in the sense, in, in many ways, and in one direction here, is you question the idea of the tension between the voluntary association rationale for uh, the, uh, the what I would say is, uh, in Brian Leiter's term, uh, why tolerate religion in this, <laughs> in, the, in this necessary human service? Although, I mean, I'm not uh, fully of the, uh, I'm not of this persuasion myself, but I I think that the idea of um, uh, the the background here seems to be an assumption of a free market of many different hospitals among which people would choose. And as you so rightly point out, in many rural areas, there really isn't this type of uh, background at play. The other thing that I think is so interesting about your piece is that you note that facilities may claim Catholic identity even when they further no charitable mission, are repudiated by the church, or are owned in no part by Catholic entities. And what I'm wondering there is, you know, this does the term Catholic become this sort of uh, bare trademark? Um, and the other issue that it brings up is, what if church teaching changes? So, you know, you could imagine uh, in the not-too-distant future, um, at least with respect to gay rights, perhaps not with respect, and, pre- and also I would say there's going to be a lot of uh, pressure on the Catholic Church to sort of reconsider aspects of end-of-life care teaching um, as the question of what it, what's extraordinary means uh, is further developed. Do these, does this sort of bare trademarkish branding type of approach to the Catholic identity of an institution risk freezing into place certain directives that may themselves end up being repudiated by the magisterium or, or uh, by official teaching in, say, an encyclical or other uh, church doctrine? Absolutely. I, I think um, you've hit on what should be a real concern for people deeply committed to uh, real Catholic institutions. Um, and, and I often hear this from, from folks who have served on um, on ethical committees in Catholic healthcare institutions. They say, look, you know, the ethical and religious directives may look as though they state clear rules, but really we balance and we weigh lots of different considerations 
generations. Uh, that's only true up to a point. Um, but that said, we just aren't going to see that sort of opportunity in a zombie Catholic hospital where you have a for-profit owner and really they're complying with the restrictions in a formalist way, right? This says no tubal ligations, no abortions, no IVF. So that's just the rule, bright line, easy to apply. But we don't have the sort of uh, conversations about religious and ethical principles going on in the institution. And over time, right, if we're enforcing church teaching through contractual terms, it's difficult to know how uh, non-experts in Catholic doctrine can possibly respond to uh, changes in Catholic teaching. Now, I should note, this isn't just a problem with regard to Catholic institutions, but Catholic healthcare is much, much larger than any other uh, religious healthcare and also has more restrictions. But I've seen these sorts of zombie religious hospitals in sales of Seventh-day Adventist hospitals uh, and also Baptist hospitals as well. Friends of the show, uh, Jessica Roberts and Elizabeth Leonard have written extensively on, quote, healthism, while our good buddy Nikki Huberfeld has talked about universality. Let's broaden the discussion a little bit into sort of the Affordable Care Act and uh, civil rights. Uh, in a blog post uh, last year talking about um, some comments you and colleagues made on an NPRM, uh, you said, quote, the ACA is our era's civil rights statute. Beyond the explicit non-discrimination protections of Section 1557, the ACA manifests a policy goal of universal non-discriminatory healthcare access. The law includes protections targeted to ensuring the health of people with disabilities, racial and ethnic minorities, and women in particular. More broadly, the goal of eradicating discrimination is represented by one of the ACA's central reforms, prohibiting health insurers from discriminating based on health-related statuses in making eligibility decisions and in setting premium rates. Can you tell us a little bit more about 1557 and the NPRM, what's trying to be achieved here, and, and, and your, your thoughts about uh, the, uh, the policy direction? Uh, 1557 of the Affordable Care Act is the really the explicit uh, anti-discrimination provision, um, and it looks a little bit like past non-discrimination laws with regard to healthcare, but it goes a step further. So 1557 prohibits discrimination um, on the basis of race, color, national origin, sex, age, and disability uh, in any health program or activity any part of which is receiving federal financial assistance. Um, so there's two ways in which 1557 by its very terms is different from non-discrimination requirements we've seen in the past uh, in healthcare. First of all, for the very first time, sex discrimination is prohibited uh, in health programs or activities receiving federal financial assistance. Um, and the other distinction is how federal financial uh, assistance is defined. It's defined explicitly to cover at least some contracts of insurance, which were excluded in the past from healthcare non-discrimination. And this means explicitly to get, of course, at exchange plans um, and practices that might discriminate on one of these bases. Uh, so obviously, the ACA was passed uh, six years ago now, um, and 
I guess about nine months ago, the uh, Department of Health and Human Services put out a proposed rule asking for comments. Um, and the rule really did some great things, but did not go far enough and in some ways was confusing. Um, so I, together with some students at Yale, uh, Liz Deutsch and Liz Durbin, as well as Jessica Roberts at University of Houston Law Center and Jessica Clark at University of Minnesota Law School, put together some comments, um, raising some some problems with the interpretation. And I think the, the real main one we saw was that was about the enforcement of 1557. Uh, because, uh, shockingly, 1557 is not the clearest example of statutory drafting, unlike the rest of the ACA. Uh, it, it's not exactly clear because it refers to all a list of, of civil rights statutes, the Age Discrimination Act, Title VI of the Civil Rights Act, Title IX of the Education Amendments. Um, it's not clear, entirely clear, how it is to be enforced. Is it to be enforced by exhausting uh, administrative remedies first? Do we have different standards for race than we have for sex? Um, and we've already seen courts split on this question. So so we really uh, urge HHS to answer the question and to answer it in a way uh, that encourages uniform enforcement of civil rights uh, standards in the most comprehensive way possible under 1557. Well, thanks, Liz. And I wanted to raise something that I think is an interesting controversy on the horizon. Um, I, But I should first check with you. Is it the case that sexual orientation discrimination is in there or no? That's a big question. Um, so it is. Uh, 1557 includes sex. HHS has said, but hesitated, um, has said that it would like to include sexual orientation. It will interpret sex to mean gender identity. So that would include the widespread discrimination against trans folks. Um, but it's, it's an open question and lots of the comments to HHS, including our own, urged uh, HHS to adopt an interpretation of sex that would include sexual orientation. Got it, because I was just thinking about um, the EEOC, I believe, has come out with the uh, interpretation that sexual orientation discrimination is discrimination on account of sex, following a theory that I think was pioneered, at least in the legal academy, by Bill Eskridge, uh, which I think is great to hear for those of us uh, in the legal academy that wonder, you know, how do these articles affect uh, agencies? And let's, assuming that they go forward uh, in the along the trail that's been blazed by EOC. Um, I want to connect it to a recent decision by NHS not to cover Truvada. Um, the National Health Service of uh, Britain, I believe, is not covering some PrEP uh, that is sort of a prophylactic drug to avoid uh, transmission of AIDS. I'm wondering, do you think that a decision like that, um, if it were taken by, say, uh, federal agencies or others, might that implicate sexual orientation discrimination? Or do you think that that would just be such a, a very difficult question that would have all sorts of variables and sort of unfair to ask in a podcast uh, off the cuff? Yes, horribly unfair. <laughs> no. uh, <laughs> I, I think it could be raised as a question of sexual orientation, especially uh, if uh, 1557 and its implementing 
the rule um, does in fact allow, as we've urged, both uh, disparate treatment and disparate impact claims. So uh, failure to cover prophylactic for HIV would have a disparate impact on people based on their sexual, on men primarily based on their sexual orientation. Um, so there might be a viable claim to be made there. Of course, as we know, simply the ability to bring a claim doesn't mean that discrimination can't be justified. After all, the government and private entities discriminate in the sense of differentiation all the time. Um, so I think there are, there are reasons why we might cover some drugs and not others that don't raise the specter even of disparate impact uh, discrimination. But it, it could be viable, yes, under approach that included sexual orientation. So at the top of the pod, I noted that today's date was May the 9th. Well, it's not generally known, but one of the reasons Frank is so productive and well-read is, is that he's actually a Time Lord. And Liz and I were able to borrow his TARDIS to travel forward to today, May 13th, 2016. Why did we need to do that, Liz? Today, HHS finally gave us the final rule on discrimination in healthcare. Uh, so it's been an exciting day working out what that rule means, the hundreds of pages of comments and replies to comments. Uh, so a couple uh, updates. Um, major developments um, in terms of specific protections for people uh, based on their gender identity. Um, so this isn't new. Actually, HHS in 2012 uh, interpreted 1557 of the Affordable Care Act to cover gender identity, and a district court has already come to the same conclusion. But here we have really specific requirements. Um, applicable to healthcare providers, uh, but also insurers. And the reach of the non-discrimination rule is pretty broad. It reaches not only um, insurers in programs that receive federal financial assistance, like through the exchanges, um, but also extends to the rest of their activity, provided that the main, their main activity is health programs and activities. Um, and we saw HHS today tell us that an explicit categorical exclusion of health services related to gender transition is a violation of Section 50, 1557 of the Affordable Care Act, that that is discrimination. That, of course, insurers can choose to uh, cover what they want. There's no affirmative requirement to cover anything in particular. Um, but, for example, HHS mentioned hysterectomies, right? So if an insurer covers hysterectomies, uh, for women when it's medically necessary, for instance, to staunch bleeding or the like, um, then they're going to have to justify the exclusion, for instance, of a hysterectomy where a doctor says it's medically necessary to treat gender dysphoria. So some, I think, major uh, improvements are in the works for insurance coverage related to gender transition. Um, HHS hesitated slightly to extend non-discrimination on the basis of sex to mean sexual orientation. So HHS tells us uh, that the rule prohibits sexual orientation discrimination based on sex stereotyping because sex discrimination means sex stereotyping about sex roles, about what it means to be a man or a woman, um, discrimination around pregnancy and the like. Uh, so we'll see. I think HHS did indicate some openness 
to interpreting sexual orientation more in line with what the EEOC has done with Title VII um, to really say that sexual orientation discrimination necessarily is sex discrimination. Um, and, and we saw some positive developments. HHS in the proposed rule had asked whether it should import the exemption for religious institutions that Title IX, the sex discrimination in education statute, uh, provides and has decided not to do that. There's a number of religious exemptions in the Affordable Care Act. And the HHS just said, look, Title IX is about educational institutions. It has lots of applications that just don't make sense in healthcare. And I think this is really important given the number of institutions um, that are religiously affiliated and providing healthcare and, and that have been subject to um, non-discrimination rules already under state law or under um, the conditions of participation in Medicaid. So, so I think this is a, that's a positive development. Uh, and then just for the, since there's so many healthcare wonks uh, listening, I think it's important to point out something else that the comment um, that I wrote together with Jessica Roberts and Jessica Clark pointed out, it's a problem that remains in the final rule, which has to do with Medicare Part B. Uh, so since the Civil Rights Act, uh, HHS and its precursor agency have said that Medicare Part A is federal financial assistance that gets institutions on the hook for discrimination requirements. And it used to be just race, uh, color, and national origin. But they said, look, Medicare Part B is different. It's a contract of insurance. It's not federal funding. Okay, fine. That didn't make a lot of sense at the time of the Civil Rights Act, but that's the interpretation. And it doesn't make sense now, but it's the interpretation that they took. But the ACA explicitly includes contracts of insurance in the non-discrimination provision. And yet, HHS now tells us that Medicare Part B still does not count as federal financial assistance. Not clear what it is now, uh, neither a contract of insurance nor federal financial assistance. But that just seems wrong to me uh, as just a matter of statutory interpretation and something that could be corrected should a plaintiff bring a lawsuit against a provider based on receipt of Medicare Part B. B. But overall, a, a big rule, an important rule uh, for people uh, who might face discrimination on the basis of sex, on the basis of sexual orientation, gender identity, uh, disability, and language rights as well. Oh, that's just incredible, Liz. Thank you very much. And uh, congratulations for being the first Twill guest to be a repeat guest before your first appearance. It's all very timey-wimey. Thank you. A double honor there. <laughs> And that was this week's The Week in Health Law. A special thank you to Professor Seppa for joining us. Uh, you can find her on Twitter at L-S-E-P-P-E-R, L Seppa. Great fun having you with us, Liz. Thank you so much. It's been great. We post our show notes at twill.com. Please go and rate our show if you have some time. You can contact me at Nicholas Terry, N-I-C-O-L-A-S-T-E-R-R-Y on Twitter. Frank, where can you be reached? I am at Frank Pasquale on Twitter. Thank you for joining us and have a legally interesting but healthy week. <laughs>